All righty, we're back, and our first question for our Q&A time uh, is, let's see, Ellen White uh, uses the term worldly policy and, and undeviating principles. Worldly policy versus undeviating principles. Uh, are these terms similar to imposed law and design law? I would see them very similar. Worldly policies are the policies and procedures and things make up. They're all arbitrary. And undeviating principles would be uh, design laws and how God makes. So I would see them another way of describing the same thing. Yes. Thank you for the powerful Bible study and blog again this week. What does the uh, word she, her represent in Proverbs 3, 13 through 17? Uh, which reads, blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing can compare with her. Uh, It's speaking of wisdom. Wisdom is the she and the her. And the wisdom isn't fact knowledge. It is the wisdom of God and how reality operates. Understanding both God, being wise to understand our need of him, our surrender and humility to him, the principles of love, liberty, and so forth. The wisdom of God is the she in this passage. My brother-in-law has recently been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Do you know of any alternative remedies that may be able to help the situation? So <clears throat> uh, my book, The Aging Brain, is written on all the lifestyle variables that contribute to the development of Alzheimer's dementia. Uh, understand dementia is a functional illness in which you've lost capacities or abilities. Memory impairment uh, with some cognitive loss of some kind. The two together uh, is dementia. Anything that damages the brain can cause dementia. So the underlying disease state causes the type of dementia. So Parkinson's disease can cause Parkinson's dementia. Uh, Alzheimer's disease causes Alzheimer's dementia. Vascular disease causes vascular dementia. So the dementia is the, the functional loss of ability, the underlying disease. Once a person has dementia... The functional losses, they've had billions of brain cells dead. So even if at that point you intervene to stop the process, so a person who's had multiple little tiny strokes because of untreated high blood pressure, and now you treat that, treat the high blood pressure, and they have no more strokes, but they already have dementia, they won't worsen from that point, but they don't get all those billions of neurons back, so you don't necessarily reverse, in fact, you don't reverse the process. So you're asking a person with Alzheimer's dementia, uh, is there a natural remedy that reverses the dementia? No, there's not. Are there things that you can, because billions of brain cells are already lost, are there things you can do that can slow progression? Yes. In fact, if you have mild cognitive changes, but you don't have yet full dementia, uh, the data shows if you do the, 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 the lifestyle changes that I've, I've described in the book, and there are other places, you can go online and look them up, the people who are aggressive at doing that, they don't progress to dementia. They stop the cognitive decline because uh, Alzheimer's type dementia, the late onset type, not the early onset type, early onset before age 55. That's a different animal. But late onset, if it's a late onset type, it's, it's lifestyle related. And if you understand the lifestyle variables and change those, you can actually change the, the cascade. And that's what the book describes. So I'd encourage you to get the book. <clears throat> what did Jesus mean in Mark 9, 1 uh, when Jesus said to them, truly I... The thing just jumped. Sorry. Truly I say to you, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Uh, it's referring, if you go in all the Gospels, immediately following it, and every Gospel that referenced this, is the transfiguration. And what they saw a week later, uh, after he said this, was they saw Jesus bright, shining as bright as the sun, they saw the representation of the resurrected from the dead with Moses, and they saw the representation of the translated into glory with Elijah. And so they saw many of the second coming, uh, his kingdom and power. And, and that's what that's referring to. 
uh, in Desire of Ages, page 87, second paragraph, it says, Jesus' brothers were older than he. I thought he was the firstborn of Mary and Joseph. Can you explain? Yes, he was the firstborn of Mary and Joseph. Joseph had children from a previous uh, wife. Evidently, uh, she died, and, and Mary was his second wife. And so that's all that means. They were not actually biologically related to Jesus. G- uh, they, they weren't even, uh, they would be technically stepbrothers rather than half-brothers. Uh, because they, uh, Joseph was not Jesus' biologic father. Where and how does intercessory prayer fit into design law? Uh, intercessory prayer is conversation with God. It, it fits under the law of liberty, and it fits in the process of exertion and the law of worship. When you're interceding in prayer, and I'm going to suggest this, intercessory prayer only actually has any impact on anybody if you care about it, if you do, and remember all the starving children of the world at the end of your prayer, that is not intercessory prayer. If you're going to do intercessory prayer, you're interceding because you care. And if you care, then first and foremost, you're conversing with God about something that's on your heart. And the first and foremost impact of intercessory prayer is the intercessor that's praying. What you may be interceding about puts you in touch with the infinite. Sometimes God may grant your intercessions. Sometimes he may not. But if you're interceding, he will be working on your heart and mind on, on, a, on a multiple different ways. Perspective changes, attitude changes, discernment changes. Uh, but perhaps in ways that cause you to do something that has a impact on the person you're interceding for. Perhaps. But there's also an aspect of God's divine sovereignty, working out the law of liberty, the law of liberty. God never violates free will and conscience of others. And so when you intercede, you can also marshal, in my understanding of things, God's power and agencies to intervene where others have said they don't want him. And he can, respecting your liberty, being intervening to a degree that doesn't override somebody else's liberty. And you see that in the uh, book of Daniel, I think it's chapter 10, when Daniel begins to pray and an angel, Gabriel, is dispatched and goes to begin to work on Darius. And uh, he says, I was resisted by the prince of uh, Persia and then later the prince of Greece. These are Satan's angels resisting. And what is Gabriel doing? Gabriel's not forcing the will of the king. D- Gabriel's bringing influences to bear. Truths, uh, uh, godly desires and motives are being influenced there, leading his mind to see things in certain ways. But, but Darius is left completely free and, and Gabriel's response is in the prayer of, of Daniel, for the prayer of Daniel. And so uh, there's another aspect of intercessory prayer. At the end of the day, though, It was the choice of the king. Uh, Comment from Lesson 29, Sabbath Rest. A new parent mother holding her baby for the first time, wrapped in love, creating a connection relationship. Then as the child grows to be an adult, that relationship grows and takes different form. The greatest joy is having your adult child come to you and say, thank you, all you've done for me over the years. To me, that is what Sabbath is about relationship. Uh, Wouldn't God have spent that first Sabbath building the relationship with his new children, then growing that relationship day by day? I thought about this. First off, let's just be very clear. God is a relational God, 
and God wants intimate relation with us. Okay, So that is irrespective of what we say about the Sabbath. That's a truth of the totality of God's being. He wants relationship as, as a parent does with their children. No question. Uh, and I think this is well, uh, beautifully, uh, movingly written. But if we think about the Sabbath uh, and, this, and, the, and the idea and the concept here, well, when did that, uh, God's relationship with Adam start? What day was he created on? Oh, so his relationship actually didn't start on Sabbath. It started on Friday. Hmm. And then if you put it in the context of the great controversy, and what we've talked about before, the purpose of the Sabbath, God, there's a controversy going on. Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to be loyal to? Can, and it says, it says in, in Zechariah 4.6, not by might nor by power, but by the way, the Spirit works as the Lord. Well, what do we see on days one through six of creation week? Might and power. We see might and power, big time might and power, creating new stuff out of nothing. This is big time might and power. But what do we see on day seven? How the spirit works. And God rests and stops using power. Now, I want you to think about how you win hearts and minds to you. You have truth on your side. You have love on your side. You have all the evidence on your side. You've presented it in winsome ways. Will you get the person settled into the truth you're presenting by following them around every moment and continuing to hound them? Or will you need to give them some space and time to think and to reflect? And God rests his case and steps back. And there's no doubt if on Sabbath they say, hey, God, I've got a question for you. I'd like to, or you know what, I'd like, I'd like to share this with you. God would be there in an instant. But to me, it's not primarily about time. Uh, because if you read the inspired record, and I checked this before I came, he visited with them in the cool of the day. But we don't have any reference he visited them on Sabbath. If you can find one, I'd like to see it. I couldn't find it in Ellen White's writings either. She actually describes it differently. If you look at the creation of Adam and Eve in Eden, she talks about the Sabbath was to be a memorial and uh, for them to recognize all that God has done for them and to reflect on that and consider deeply these things. But she does not talk about a visitation or an interaction with God on the Sabbath. So uh, I think the Sabbath is the memorial commemoration and opportunity for us to reflect and solidify. And there's no question if we, if we invite God, God, I, I want to spend some time with you today, of course he's going to spend time with us. But it's not one of those types of situations that he pesters and hounds and, and, and follows you everywhere and gives you no space. I think it's, it's, it's functionally more beautiful than that. So anyway, did I offend anybody with that? Next, it says, uh, what is your understanding about marriage uh, in the new in the new earth and in eternity, um, and then he goes on, of course, to, to ask the question. This comes up over and over again. Uh, the bottom line with the question of marriage uh, is: believe whatever you want. <laughs> You'll know when you get there. It's a, it's a complete uh, irrelevancy at this point because we don't know. There is no definitive, absolute statement on the quality or context of what marriage will be like. And you can argue your theories back and forth, and I don't think it brings any any real light. Probably more heat than light to get uh, into it. So I don't have a heartburn anyway. You don't believe there's going to be marriage in the new heaven and the earth? Believe that. If you want to believe, we'll be like angels and we'll all have an intimacy that even beyond what we currently experience in our marriage with everyone, that we'll all be one like God is one. You can believe that too. 
Okay? Um, we'll, we'll find out when we get there, and it'll be, it'll be beyond whatever we can imagine here. Uh, he said, what would be the most accurate definition, description of the remedy procured by Jesus? Uh, and, um, and what was the procured by his perfect and sacrificial death? I think I went through that quite effectively during class today. If, if you felt like I didn't, then, then send a message, and we'll, we'll spend some more time on it. But I think what I went through in class really um, went in great depth under that question. But I would tell you to check Desire of Ages 762, um, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life, and read that paragraph. Uh, I've had uh, this phrase, not by my hand. Uh, there is a movie called The Mist, and at the end of the movie, a man, uh, the main character shoots everyone in the car, then turns the gun on himself, but the gun won't fire, no bullets inside. He, he killed them to save them from the calamities that was about to come upon them in the mist. Just then, though, somber uh, tone, cavalry comes, cavalry comes riding, riding along and, and uh, was able to save them, and they didn't really have to die, basically, as it looks like the way the story's going. And he said that movie impressed him not by my hand. Okay, I won't be tricked into try to saving somebody else's suffering on a potential threat. Uh, and so the idea was they were going to suffer. They're about to die. Uh, you can save your family from all the suffering if you take them out and kill them. And this was the idea of the movie. But he found, finds out that, in fact, um, if he wouldn't have acted, there was another rescue that was about to happen. And he didn't know about it. And so the, he, he, he got this thing not by my hand. Uh, so he, he, he's committed. And this, this person who's written says, so it won't be by my hand moving forward. That's, that's the, the challenge here. And then he goes on to say, um, let's see. Uh, uh, let's see. Do, 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 do. Another movie he saw where a, uh, a, uh, the decision was to shoot down a, a, a passenger liner who is, uh, of course, you know, has a potential bomb on board and is coming. And so do we shoot the passenger liner down or not shoot the passenger liner down to save other lives and so forth? And um, he says, I know that God makes uh, these kinds of decisions uh, uh, throughout history. Um, at, at, as, as finite beings, is it ever right to take life to save life? Um, self-defense, no, but how about saving others? Well, you know something? This is a debate that's been going on ever since uh, Christ came, and I think at the end of time, this is going to be where Satan tricks people. I think Satan's going to trick people here. I can tell you, if you look at the life of um, Sergeant York in World War I and compare him to Desmond Doss in World War II, both of them Congressional Medal of Honor winners, both of them devout Christian folk. Uh, Sergeant York did not want to uh, be in the military, did not want to take up arms. When he was drafted for World War I, he spent quite some time in deep prayer and Bible study. And at the end of the day, he decided, after prayer and conviction, that he would take up arms because it was uh, because he judged that the regime that was happening in Germany was was killing lots of people, and the sooner you stop what they were doing, you could save lives that way. And so he became the most decorated war hero in World War One, um, capturing more Germans, and he killed killed people too. Um, but he got the Gresham Medal of Honor. He took up arms and killed people. Uh, Desmond Doss had the opposite, and we all know that story. And he didn't take up arms, and he went to serve by being a medic and saving lives. And he also uh, got the Congressional Medal of Honor. The point being is they both were wanting to honor God, and they both were wanting to save lives, and they had a different conviction of what the Holy Spirit was leading them to do in their lives. Who am I to judge that? And it's not mine to judge. Every person be persuaded in their own mind. I do think, though, at the end of time, the beastly system rises. And what will, what will be faced, if you look at the history where Satan always, always confronts people, uh, is, is this question of, do you love God so much that you would sacrifice your life for him? Or do you only love him to the point of, you know, remember Job? 
Oh, he loves you because you're paying good. Well, of course he loves you because you've got him good health. Touch his flesh and he'll curse you. Okay? And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel, they were faced with the question, do we stay loyal to God or are we willing to die for, our, uh, for this, the temptation of their own life? And then, of course, Jesus at the cross and, and, and other martyrs through history. But then it's going to come down, I think, at the end of time to where it's a question of are you willing to sacrifice yourself or are you willing to force others to take certain behaviors to protect yourself? Like, oh, no, I'm not willing to put myself at risk in the community, so I'm going to make everybody else get a vaccine that I think is going to actually make me safe from them. So I'm going to force them to do things the way I want so that I can be safe. And after all, I'm just protecting them anyway. And so this, this dynamic, I think, will be, and I think the, the, the pr- principle is correct that we have responsibility to live our lives in governance of self by living out God's principles and that never coerces another person's conscience. We leave them free. Uh, God's love for the fallen race is a peculiar manifestation of love, a love born of mercy. The, for the human beings are all undeserving. Mercy implies the, uh, this is, I think this is a quotation we're reading now. I think it's a quotation from Yes, it's a quotation from Wright. Mercy implies the imperfection of the object toward which it is shown. It was uh, because of mercy, because of sin, that mercy was brought into uh, active exercise. In their uh, behalf, he says to the Father, do not impute their sins to them, uh, but lay them on me. Be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities. Remember them no more. Uh, they have accepted my merits and made peace with me. My righteousness is theirs, and for my sake, bless them with the spiritual blessings. Uh, how would you reframe this? Well, this is pretty straightforward to me. Is it straightforward to y'all? It's Law lens. Go back to the law lens, you ask. What's actually being described here? Put it in the context of all the rest of the Scripture and inspired record. Jesus said in John 16, would not pray the Father on our behalf. The Father himself loves you. What we just described about Jesus was the agency to carry out the Father's will for provide the, to procure the remedy so that the Father could use through the agency of his Spirit to heal and, 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 uh, and uh, restore us. And so this is written in a way that people, I think, who are still stuck in a more primitive legal model can have some encouragement while they grow grow up, and, and that's all that's going on here, but the realities don't change. I know many sincere people, some Christians, some not, all who are actively seeking truth through prayer and study, yet all these people that I know or I know have come to start contrasts and ideas, uh, God, Jesus, Bible, prophecy, etc. For example, one of the people I'm referring to was a Sunday-keeping Christian who started uh, prayer praying for truth and began studying his Bible, but now is down a deep rabbit hole of Hebrew roots movement, which believes you must keep the old covenant laws and feasts in order to be saved. Yet for others who who study and pray for answers and truth, they come to other ideology. Uh, I did and found you and design law. How can uh, people truly ask for truth and light from God, yet receive completely different uh, opposite messages? Well, uh, multiple answers to this, and they're all applicable, depending on how you're looking at this. First off, you have to understand, for God, it isn't about fact knowledge, primarily. Uh, when he looks at who's saved and who's lost, when Christ comes in, in his clouds, and all the redeemed are, are meeting in heaven, who correctly knows every detail about the Bible? It's not about factually getting all the details right. The saved are those, and remember, this, go back to Matthew, the sheep and the goats. As you've done it unto the, the least of these, you've done it unto me. Okay, it is do we have godly love in our hearts, 
such that we will sacrifice for God and sacrifice for others, or do we have survival driven in our hearts that solidified such that we sacrifice others for self? This is the big divide. And so all the different details of ritual and, and, uh, and uh, denomination and all that w- will fade away in the hereafter as we all come to one agreement on the ultimate fact details. But all those who are saved coming from all the different walks will have the common love for God and love for others in the way they function and how they treat others. Now, with that being said, as you look at the fact knowledge, each one of us have our own histories. We come from our own places. We have our own journeys. We have our own biases. We have our own prejudices. And so God is leading people in their individual journey to that heart transformation renewal such that they die to self, love God, and love others. Uh, If a person's particular mindset, journey, history, biases, presumption, and assumptions, uh, that person needs to go through a wilderness journey and feasts and festivals in order to find that truth. God will lead them into that place. Others may be led down a different process and a different fellowship to find those same truths because they have their different biases and, and, uh, and concerns that they're working out. So one way to view this is a metaphor of golf. And on the golf course, the golfer has many different clubs. They use a sand wedge for the ball when it's in the sand. They use a putter on the green. They use a driver on the tee. They use an iron in the fairway. Uh, and, and, and there's a principle here. But notice, every time they strike the ball, their goal is to move it towards the hole. God is the golfer. Okay? Potter, clay, golfer, ball. Okay, It's a metaphor. And he's trying to move us all towards the, the cup, the cup of his salvation. Okay, and some of us, and we're all in different places, and he approaches us and plays or moves us with what's necessary down the right direction. Okay, and and so that's why I don't get caught up too much into a lot of these arguments. Uh, yes, I think that uh, that uh, now the devil is also working. And so, if the question is how can people who are pursuing truth be deceived, that's a different question. See, I took this in a in a very positive light that people can have different conclusions and all still be on the same path to the same eternal life. But there can be people, and and Jesus describes those people. They said to me, "Lord, Lord, uh, we did all this in your name. Get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you." Okay, and so uh, that that goes back to then the mode of the heart. You will find Jesus when you seek Him with. So some people study Bible not to find Jesus. They study the Bible to get their doctoral degree in theology. They do, to get a job, to be able to write papers, to prove a point to their neighbor. Okay, And if you're studying the Bible for these purposes, you're not going to find Jesus because you're not actually seeking him with your heart. You're seeking something else, and, and you all find what you seek. Yeah, so that, that's another reason, and we can't judge the heart, and I'm not judging you, I'm just saying a reality of how it works, okay? Uh, all right, staying with the truth that Jesus is the only one that could die the unique death in which death, uh, in which death and sin was destroyed, securing a way for salvation uh, of humanity. What would have transpired if, after the fall of Eve, Adam remained faithful? Well, we don't know. Exactly. Um, there would have uh, been an unfallen human being, but since Adam was not God, wouldn't that mean that the death of Jesus would still be necessary in order to save Eve and her offspring? Or could salvation be obtained through Adam's unfallen man? Well, that's an interesting question, and it's all speculation. We have no data on that. But we do have an interesting qu- quote from Ellen White where she talked about in heaven, after Satan's rebellion, that he was offered pardon 
and restoration upon repentance and submission. Get your mind. Go back. You can find this quote. I can find it for you, too, if you, if you can't find it, if you don't have the database to look it up. But in heaven, after he rebelled, he'd been spreading his lies. He was convinced that he was wrong. Again and again, he was offered pardon on the condition of repentance and submission. No death penalty. Could Eve have been restored under that condition because there was a humanity that still was unfallen and solidified? I, I don't know the answer to the question. But there is a, uh, a, a uh, at least that passage that suggests there is the possibility of a restoration. But not once Adam fell. There was not, no humanity in order for there to be a perfect human nature developed through. Adam could have still developed the perfect human nature. Could that have been in some way transferred to her? We don't know the question. We don't know the answer. Uh, thank you, Dr. Jennings, for all that you do to help us understand God's design law in your most... Uh, in, in most of your Bible quotes, you seem to prefer the NIV. Can you share uh, why you gravitate toward the version? Yeah, because that's the one I grew up on. Nothing more than that. It's the one I'm familiar with. It's the language. I'm, if, I, if I'd have grown up uh, a generation before, I'm sure I'd be in the King James, one of the new King James, probably, uh, just simply because it's very familiar to my database and I can find things in it very quickly. That's, that's the only reason. Uh, I understand that, uh, and, I, and I will actually, if I don't like the way the NIV does certain ones, you will see in some of the uh, documents that I write that I will find a different version that says it in a better way. So, um, but, but in general, I kind of like that one. I understand the NIV was also updated in 2011. There's a particular reason we quote from the NIV 84. Yes, because the NIV 84 is the one I'm familiar with. <laughs> so that's, the, that's why. All righty, uh, let's close with prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your love and for your mercy and for your patience, and thank you for the truths of your kingdom. Um, help us to just grow in, in the knowledge of your kingdom and the love of your character and make us effective at this time in history to prepare the word for your return. We pray in your holy name. Amen.